Today's reading will be from Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Brian. So uh, I keep wondering uh, when we're going to get to an easy passage in Ephesians, and it just doesn't happen. So we've got eight verses today, probably uh, equivalent to the longest passage that we're looking at as we go through this. Uh, we're in the second half of the book now, and we're actually taking a little longer to go through the second half than the, than the first. And these verses, 17 through 24, are really just continuing um, with this theme of, of uh, here's who you were without Christ, and here's who you are with Christ, and these continuing exhortations uh, to look to Christ and to keep uh, putting off or shunning Uh, staying away from the things uh, of the world, the things of culture that just toss us to and fro. And he starts this section, uh, verse 17, Paul says, now I say this and testify in the Lord. It's a sense, it's it's a sort of a, you know, Paul is Jewish and and it's sort of a a formulation of an oath is what he's doing. it's, It's a way of him saying, uh, listen, everything I've been saying, writing is important, but you really need to listen here. I'm testifying in the Lord. And then what he testifies to in the following verses are actually related back to verse 14. Let me read that uh, verse to you, which we looked at two weeks ago, where he says, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So he is continuing with this understanding that we need to just keep pressing into Christ and and calling for the Holy Spirit to fill us, to lead us, to guide us and direct us. And ultimately, in chapter 5, he's going to get to a point where he simply says, you have to shun everything else because everything else is foolishness. If you're influenced by anything else in this world, you will end up becoming a fool and behaving in a foolish way, but wisdom is found in seeking the will of God, seeking after Christ. And and he's pointing out continuously, if you think we've been pounding on this, it's because Paul's been pounding on this. He points out continuously that the problem is that our minds struggle mightily with what I would call the cultural expectations. The world, the culture has expectations for how we are supposed to behave. And if you don't believe that, just go on social media. People are telling us, preaching to us, proclaiming all the time what is right and what is wrong, and really there's no discussion anymore. 
very little discussion. That there are mandates, movements, and dogmas that this world would like to impose on us. And they, the world likes to do it through the guise of, we're not pushing anything on you. And then there's always, but, but. Paul's prescription here is to put off the old self and put on the new self, who is Christ Jesus. Put on Christ because he is the truth. The truth is in him. Next week, we look at verse 25, which says we're to put away falsehoods and speak truth to each other because we are members of one another. And, and the truth that Paul is speaking of is, is not some formula. He's talking about, talking about Jesus to each other because Jesus is truth. Here's our big idea today. The putting off of the old self and the putting on of the new self is rooted in the power of God and resists the influence of the predominant culture in favor of the will of God. So I'm going to kind of break it up into two little sections, 17 through 19, then 20 through 24, and then there's going to be a huge application um, section. So 17 through 19, Paul writes this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, what's interesting is we've been talking a lot about Gentiles uh, in the book of Ephesians because it comes up quite often. Uh, but here, Paul really isn't talking about Gentiles from an ethnic perspective. In other words, a person who isn't a Jew. Um, certainly, it refers to how those who are not Jewish might think because they don't know the one true God, but he's talking here about anybody who has that worldview, regardless of their ethnicity. So he shifts a little bit in his understanding and definition of Gentiles. In other words, this word here in verse 17 is not used ethnically, but is any worldview that differs from one that recognizes God as God. That's what he's referring to. And we realize this is true because Paul uses the word futility to describe the mind of the one who does not know Yahweh, the father of the Messiah, Jesus, and therefore does not know Jesus. In their context, having a futile mind worships, I'm sorry, details a person who worships false gods and one who, here you go, very much like today, thinks of themselves as enlightened because they reject God. I, I'm enlightened because I don't believe in God. I have a sophistication. They had that problem 2,000 years ago as well. They had people saying the exact same thing 2,000 years ago. And here's the irony. The irony is that you didn't have to be ethnically a Gentile to think this way. Many Jews thought this way. There were lots of Jews who, who understood their life, their tradition was rooted in the Exodus story, in the Babylonian exile story, in the uh, triumphant return to Jerusalem. They have this incredible history and tradition that's borne out in the 39 books of, of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, and yet they don't believe either. They're raised in it, they're taught it, and they don't believe either. 
many Jews thought like Gentiles. In fact, they, they wanted to think like Gentiles because they wanted, here you go, they wanted to be accepted by the culture. They wanted to be affirmed by the world they were living in, which was primarily a Greco-Roman world. If you think about the prophets in the Old Testament, the prophets were primarily speaking to Jews who had a Gentile mind, a non-Jewish worldview, a, a worldview that rejected Yahweh. They may have professed him with their, their mouths, but they were rejecting him in all practicality. Some people call it um, practical atheism. You, you claim that you know God, but you live your life like an atheist, like he doesn't really exist. And so the prophets would preach to them. And I can think of nothing more seductive to we humans than the affirmation of the surrounding culture. Tom Parker, who's the uh, head of the Fuller Seminary here in Phoenix, he says all the time, human beings are affirmation addicts. We are addicted to affirmation. It's one of the reasons we're on social media. We love to hear that ding of a like or a retweet or whatever it is. We just want affirmation. And Christians are prone to this. We, we're not immune to this. We are prone to this as well. We may claim Christ, but our minds are shaped and formed by the pattern of this world. This is why Paul says, writes in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing, and what he means there by testing is you're testing what you're thinking and what you're doing against the reality of the gospel, Okay? You don't test the gospel against your truth and sort out what you don't like about the gospel and God's word. You test your life, your thoughts, your behaviors, your plans, your agenda against the gospel and let the gospel sort out what isn't true in your life. By testing, we will be able to discern the will of God, what is good and perfect and acceptable because that's where wisdom is. In verse 18, he says that this futility leads to a darkness in our understanding, alienating, that word literally means completely separating, separating us from the life and will of God. What does the darkness refer to here? Paul is referring to the cloud of worldly wisdom, the, the, the dysfunction and the distortion of worldly wisdom. Are we beginning to understand at this point, those of you who have been here for pretty much all of chapter 4, are we beginning to understand that this chapter had in its day and has for us today a lot to say about culture? It does. And I know this discussion of culture makes us uncomfortable and even unhappy because we like this stuff. We like this stuff. And I'm talking really about myself. I am a pop culture guy. I love pop culture. I studied it at ASU. And if ever there's a place to study pop culture, I mean, come on. I love it. I, I, I love the movies and the music. How many sermons can I actually get through without referring to a movie for crying out loud? I, I, I love binge watching and I love food. Food is part of popular culture. And I love color and even political thought. Political thought has been hijacked by popular culture now. All of that, culture. The problem is, is that we need genuine wisdom to be able to navigate all of that. 
We can't pull ourselves out of it. Jesus never said separate yourselves from that stuff. He said you have to be in the world, but you can't be of the world. You have to go into the world. I'm sending you into the world, but you have to have the mind of Christ filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to walk with wisdom through that. That's the key. Genuine wisdom is needed for this because one of the ways that Satan darkens our understanding is through his use of culture because it's so popular. It's fun. It's entertaining. And by the way, culture is very self-affirming. You can find some way to get affirmed somewhere in culture, always. But, but the funny thing about culture, which is one of the reasons why I love it so much, is that you can also find threads of the gospel in pop culture. We talk about this often. The best stories are still the ones originally found in Scripture, and then culture kind of takes them and, and runs with them in a, in a different way. But in order to find that stuff, you have to be looking. I just, during my study break, one of the books I read was uh, a book called God in the Movies, and it analyzed 40 different movies over the last four decades and talked about how the gospel is contained in these movies. Absolutely fascinating. And since that time, I've watched some of the movies that I didn't, that, that they talked about in the book that I hadn't, that I hadn't seen yet. And, and it's really interesting to be able to, to look. But what we have to be looking, we have to have that frame of mind to be able to catch it and see it. I know it's hard for some of you to believe, but I see the gospel and threads of human nature all over the Godfather stories, all over anything Woody Allen does. I know some of the, I just lost some of you right there, but... Woody Allen has an incredible, a dark but incredible understanding of human nature. Uh, it, it, you have to be looking. You have to observe culture with discernment. The problem is, is that most of, the, most of the time our vision is so darkened by the culture that we can't see it. So for instance, here you go. The recent popularity of the superhero movies. Okay, I personally do not know anybody who doesn't like these movies. I've been seeking, trying to find that person. I can't find... Everybody loves these movies for some reason, okay? And, 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 and it's so... Think about these movies. Isn't there an ancient, gospely, time-honored motif of redemption and salvation in these movies? Isn't that there? What, you think these screenwriters and these comic book writers, they're the first ones to think of this? And by the way, here you go, by the way, I did go see Infinity War. I did go see it. So I'm, I, here, I'm, I'm not talking out of turn. I'm not talking about something that I haven't seen and haven't experienced. I went to see Infinity War, one of the best naps I've had in a long time. <laughs> by the way, I saw Tag yesterday, or two days ago also, almost as good as Infinity War, let me tell you. But, but here's what I hear from, oh, but Frank, these movies, they're so, ex they're so new and so exciting, and I'm not saying they're not exciting. I'm not saying that. They are exciting. I'm not saying they aren't entertaining. And if you go to Harkins, the popcorn is really, really good, so you can't lose, okay? But new? Ser seriously? New? New? Are you kidding? New? Really? Here you go. If you think this stuff is new, you have a darkened understanding because the culture has done this to you. You are being formed by the pattern of this world. You can go and enjoy these movies, but look, look and see what they're doing there. It's, it's, a, it's another way of presenting the gospel. I said this about Infinity War. Somebody else has to save you. That's the gospel. You can't save yourself. 
can't save yourself. Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter 2. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. This is a big theme for Paul. He writes about this constantly. Paul says that when we're enslaved to this futility, this anti-God state of mind, we are ignorant and our hearts are hard. He says we are ignorant, his word, not mine. And our hearts are hard. We're living in darkness. It's right there in verse 18. And that darkness, ignorance, and hardness leads to verse 19. It leads to callousness and slavery. Yeah, slavery. We willingly choose to submit ourselves to and enslave ourselves to the things of the world. And we worship at these altars. And Cody has said this before. We become like that which we worship. If you're worshiping something in the world, you will become like the world. If you're worshiping Jesus, you will become more like Jesus. This is so important to understand. Even when presented with the clear and compelling love, grace, and truth of God in Jesus Christ, we tend to reject it and continue to serve the things of this world. The pleasures of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, as John says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Those are the things of the world. Flesh, eyes, pride. I'm better than you are. But the way of Jesus, the way of the gospel is different. Look at verses 20 through 24. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you had, have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So verses 20 and 21, he, he's hitting us. This is a big theme for Paul. He's hitting us with the importance of remembering. Remember. You know, you hear about Jesus, you come to Jesus, now the rest of the process is you gotta have you gotta remind yourself every day. That's why we say you gotta read the Bible. You gotta come to Bible study, you gotta go to church, you gotta be in community, you need to be reminded constantly, and you need to be learning new. And you look at verse 23, there's that Romans 12 thing again, the, the, the new mind. Paul says that transformation starts with the transformation of the mind. The rest follows. And again, the Jewish background for Paul, putting on the new self in the Old Testament is described as clothing yourself in the Spirit of God. So this is, Paul's using a lot of his ethnic and traditional history in writing this. And again, in Colossians, when he writes to the church at Colossae, which he wrote about the same time as uh, this book, Ephesians, he says it this way in chapter 3, do not lie to one another seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. There, renewed with the knowledge. We constantly have to be pursuing this, reminding ourselves and learning. Renewed with the knowledge. A new self and a renewed mind that leads by the power of the Holy Spirit to the likeness of God in true righteousness. At the beginning of chapter uh, Five, Paul is going to say, therefore, be imitators of God. <laughs> imitators of God. 
follow after God. So in verses 17 through 19, what you have is the old self, which is in Adam. That's the way it's discussed in the book of Romans. Your old self is yourself that was in Adam, Adam and Eve, those who originally sinned. Our old self is in this fallen, sinful nature. One author writes this, Adam's fall, Adam's original sin, rendered my deep and primal feelings untrustworthy and untrue. Culture tells us what? Go deep, go deep into your heart, go deep into your feelings, go to those primal feelings, that's where you'll find truth. And the gospel says, no, that's where you'll find all the darkness, all the falsehood, all the untruth. The culture is counting on you following your heart, counting on you to follow your heart because it feels right. And then verses 20 through 24 is the new self in Christ. And one of the benefits of the new self is that it is a healed self. We begin to see our pain and our suffering, which is devastating, in a new light, in a whole new light. Here you go. Write this down. Whether you know Christ or not, you will suffer. That's life. That's life. At least Jesus acknowledges the reality of that, unlike the world that says, if you just follow this, you're going to have a life of ease. You're never going to suffer again. It's just wrong. But we're blinded to that. There is clarity and understanding in Christ about the realities of sin and pride and the corrupted worldview of the predominant cultures. And there's, there's this new godly wisdom about trials and suffering. You ever get frustrated that God's not answering your prayer because things aren't going the way you want them to? My life stinks right now. Could have used another word, but it stinks right now. And well, come on, God, show me something. Tell me something. I'm praying for this. I'm praying for that. I, I, I'm not getting anything. Here you go. No matter where you are, even in the hard stuff, one of three things, and maybe all three, are going to happen. Either God has you there because you're supposed to learn something, and the only way sometimes we can learn is through hardship, right? How often do you talk about how you learn so much through all your great successes and achievements? Usually when we talk about our learning, we talk about going through something hard. Uh, He may have you there because it's hard, but he's using you to bless someone else. You may not even realize that in the middle of that, you're blessing someone else. Or he may have you in a hard place because he's going to use someone else to bless you in the midst of that. And maybe it just hasn't happened yet. But one of those three things is happening, at least, and sometimes two or all three of them are happening. So, here you go. Putting off and putting on. This is where I really want to focus on here. And I'm going to look at it through maybe a little different lens than what some of you might suspect. We're going to talk about um, determinism and predestination and election and fate on one hand. And then we're going to talk about free will and agency and choice on the other hand. We're going to kind of set those up for a few minutes in opposition to each other. And then we're going to come around and talk about how they actually coexist a little bit. And let me start by saying this. Okay, here you go. These next five or six minutes are just really important. Look at me. I'm bending over. They're so important, okay? 
If you have caffeine with you, would you please take a sip, okay? You really need to focus on the, in the next five or six minutes, okay? Okay? Because it's going to lay the groundwork for everything else we're going to say. This is a fact. Research has proven this for decades now. This is a fact. People believe, resolutely, they believe in predestination or determinism or fate, whatever you want to call it, when bad things happen to them. But firmly believe in free will or agency or the right to choose when good things happen to them. You got that? And I know some of you right now are grinding your teeth going, oh, not me. Yes, you. Come on. Wake up to the truth of this. It's just true. Okay? And by the way, those of, those of you who are really churched, you know this predestination election and, and free will conversation. We've been having it for a century now. Okay? Luther versus Erasmus, all this stuff, reform theology, uh, Calvinism and um, Arminianism, all that stuff. Here's what you need to understand. They're having these conversations in other disciplines besides theology. Even th these debates are even more rancorous in some of the other disciplines. They're having this conversation in biology. It's called, it's, they're calling it determinism and agency. Which is it? Is my destiny determined by my biology, or do I get to shun my biology and I have the agency to change my biology? That's a big conversation right now. They're having this conversation in criminology as well. Nurture versus nature, same conversation. Understand you cannot escape this. And we've locked the doors so you're trapped now for the next 15 minutes. So you're just going to have to listen to this, okay? And here's what it goes back to, all right? A lot of this goes back to something called attribution. They've been doing attribution theory research for decades, never been falsified. Here's what attribution is for those of you that don't know what attribution is. When we observe things happening, especially when we observe other people, people we're in relationship with, like our spouses, our family, our coworkers, our friends, and people we are not in relationship, people we don't even know. When we observe the world, when we observe other people, we can't help ourselves. This is the way our brains work. We attribute a cause, a reason, or a motivation to whatever is happening or to that person, the way they're communicating or they're behaving. In our minds, we make up some little theory in our mind about why that person is talking the way they're talking, behaving the way they're behaving, doing what they're doing. We make up this little theory in our minds, and then we decide, well, they're doing it for this reason. And we believe that we have other people figured out. We really do. And this attribution mostly runs in our subconscious. Occasionally, it'll flare up to the front, and it'll be part of a conversation. But most of the time, it's just running in our, in, kind of in the background. And we make these attributions based on two major sets of factors, external factors and internal factors. So if I see somebody behaving or communicating a certain way, and I attribute the cause of their behavior or communication to an external factor, what I'm saying is it's because of that person's context, situation, or environment that they're behaving that way. Something external to them is causing them, causing them to behave that way. But if I make an internal attribution, I believe that the reason they're behaving or communicating their way has something to do with their character and personality. 
They're behaving that way or acting that way because they're temperamental, selfish, self-righteous, or they're behaving and acting that way because they're selfless, loving, and understand, whatever that is. And we're sure we're right every time we make one of these attributions. We are absolutely sure that we're correct. By the way, have you ever made an attribution? Yes, you have. When you make an attribution in traffic, you're making internal attributions. The person who cuts you off, how many times have you said, oh, I was probably in his blind spot? No, you call him names. That's an internal attribution. You're assassinating his character because you believe that only a selfish jerk could cut you off in traffic. You know this is true. Here's the most interesting part of this. This is why I had to get here. There's also something in this called the self-serving bias. We also make these attributions about ourselves. Our behavior, our communication, okay? And here's, the self, here's how the self-serving bias works. When we do something wonderful, when we do something good, when we do something laudable, when we get affirmed, when we achieve something, internal attribution. Well, of course. It's me. <laughs> I'm a good, hard-working, wonderful, honest, loving, selfless person, of course. But when something bad happens, what? External attribution. Well, nobody could have succeeded in that situation. Well, the reason I flew off the handle was because of all these other people. Right? Right? So we always see ourselves in a better light. Circle back. We believe in determinism when something bad happens. We believe in free agency when something good happens. You see how this works? And it affects all of our relationships. Okay? Now, let's talk a little bit about predestination determinism a little bit more theologically. And I'm going to make a comment just as a pastor and a preacher on this idea uh, of free will, choice, agency, and predestination. Now, listen closely to this. If it were true that God is ultimately not the one who opens our eyes, transforms our heart, and calls us to put on the new, then our salvation is more dependent on me and my ability to persuade and convince you than on God. You get that? Right? Okay. Why? You might ask, why? The reason is because salvation is no longer about the active love, mercy, and grace of God working in your life, but now it's about whether or not I can convince you through logic, fancy rhetoric, or emotional man manipulation. You ever been man emotionally manipulated by somebody? How long does that last, and how angry do you get about it? Now just think about that. Think about what I just laid out. Here you go. Take this to its logical conclusion. If you end up in hell for eternity, it's my fault. Now think about that. Think about that. If God's will is not in charge of all of this and your will is, I would quit. Because that's a pressure nobody can live under. Nobody can live under that pressure. And, and, and for sure, think about this, I'm certainly, just ask Jackie, I'm not holy enough for this task. Not to mention that there are many, many people who are way, way smarter than you and me and who could argue you and me under the table in a nanosecond. 
And I could never answer all the questions. I've, I've noticed with non-believers, so I've got a few questions if you can answer these questions. And they come and they ask the questions and I give them the biblical, here's what scripture says. Here's what I've noticed. And some of you are already shaking your heads. Here's what, okay, it's not a couple of questions. There is always another question. Always another question, another question, another question. It's a defense mechanism. God hasn't opened your eyes yet. That's what it is. There's always another question. I can't answer all the questions. No one can. No one is capable. I could have more degrees than a thermometer and not be able to compete with that. So if, if an unbeliever is open to the gospel, here's what their prayer should be. If an unbeliever does have some openness to the reality of Jesus, here's what their prayer should be. It should not be for someone to convince them, but for God to open their eyes and transform their heart. That's the prayer they need. And for the believer, those who already believe, we need to realize that the gospel is not moralistic deism. Do you know what moralistic deism is? It's God standing there saying, do better, try harder. That's not the gospel. Because you can't do better and you can't try harder unto perfection. You can't. We're not capable of it. It's only empowered by the Holy Spirit that we can even begin to move in that direction. And it's only by the sacrifice of Christ that God sees us righteous and not unrighteous. It's the only way. The only way. God says that we can do better because it's him working in us. Uh, Brian Chapel, a pastor and seminary professor, writes this. In our humanity, we consistently ignore Scripture and continue to practice moralism as a ballistic assault to break down heaven's resistance against blessing us. In doing so, we not only ignore the nature of humanity, but the character of God. We ignore the nature of humanity. We're never going to be good enough. Get over yourself. And we ignore the character of God. He is good enough and he loves you in spite of yourself. And he's, he's made the sacrifice necessary for you to be righteous. And speaking of scripture, here's one more thing to chew on. The fact is the Bible has more spiritual power than you and I could ever possibly understand in this mortal and temporal life. It's the reason many people get mad and offended at scripture. Not that it's offensive, but because the power of the Spirit and God's holiness when confronting darkness in our hearts is truly maddening and, and disorienting. The call to put off the old and put on the new in Christ is disruptive. But it also, it is also the reason so many other people respond with overwhelming joy, gratitude and compassion to the Word of God because it is spiritual and holy beyond any understanding that you and I have. Uh, in the first century, the rabbis would be teaching their young students and they would bring in honey and they would, ask, they would ask their students to close their eyes and stick out their tongue and then they'd put a drop of honey on their tongues. And then they would say, the Word of God is like honey on your tongues. It's good. It's true. The compulsion of the word is divine. It's not human. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, in other words, human wisdom, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. 
Hebrews chapter 4 says the word of God is living and active. Isn't it kind of foolish to think that an ancient text absent the power of God would transform anyone today? I think that's foolish. And yes, by the way, the Holy Spirit can use my words, but it's always his work that transforms, enlightens, and reveals. And yes, I need to study and prepare, and I need to pray in the midst of that. But absent the work of the Holy Spirit, in my study and my preparation, I might as well go back to retail. And I hear Walmart's hiring greeters. The Word of God is so powerful that that it can even override the motives of human beings. I mean, talk about determinism. Listen to Philippians chapter 1, just a couple pages to your right. Paul writes this, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, the ones that are preaching Christ for all the wrong reasons, like money and jets. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So I don't even care about the motivations. If Christ is being proclaimed, somebody's going to get saved. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? I think it is. So what, all right, here you go. So what does this mean for all of us? Every person, every person in this room, every single person is looking for what one author calls true north. True north means Purpose, meaning, truth, and what really matters in life. We're all looking for true north. In other words, we're all looking for a way to take off the old and put on the new. We want something new because the old has never worked for us. So we're constantly changing out of our old garb and changing into something new. And if it's something from the world, you're going to be changing out of that shortly again. And what we've been told repeatedly for years and have accepted and embraced without critical evaluation is that our hearts are the best guide for that. And I'm not denying that emotion and affect play a critical and essential role in who we are as human beings, but we've really overdone it when it comes to emotions. We really have. The person now who is the most emotional gets their way in most situations. Not the most logical. If you're the most emotional, you get your way. What I said earlier has been documented over and over again. We believe in election, predestination, determinism, fate, whatever you want to call it, when things go poorly for us. Here's why. It allows us to place the blame for our bad stuff somewhere else. We love that. But when things go well and we want to have the illusion of control, well, then free will, agency, independence, and choice rule our perception. One of the most important things we need to do when it comes to putting off the old self and putting on the new is to jettison this flawed understanding of both determinism and free will. Both of them. Both of them. And here's what it means. And I'm going to use the S word. It means you have to submit to God. You have to submit to his wisdom, his sovereignty, and his will. This perspective recognizes and accepts that there is something bigger than us with power, even Chris Pratt said it recently, who is in ultimate control and that that he, God, is benevolent. We need to remember that God has an ultimate purpose that's probably a little bit bigger than ours and might get in the way of our little dinky purpose occasionally. 
And that's why we so desperately need the filling, the power, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Here you go. God has given us agency. He has given us a will. It's how he's created us. I'm not denying agency. I'm not denying will. He's given us that. That's how he's created us. But he is also sovereign. God causes or allows everything that happens. Everything. He's either causing it or he's allowing it to happen. If that's not true, he's not God. There is no maverick molecule anywhere running around in the universe, screwing everything up that God can't seem to control. No maverick molecule. And that's the tension that we live in. Both are true. You ever talk to a hardline Calvinist? That can be a pretty miserable conversation. You ever talk to a hardline Arminian? That's an equally miserable conversation. The problem is is that we want everything in a neat little box. There's tension here. God's sovereignty and our agency. And I know it sounds goofy, but the way to freedom is actually to submit ourselves to God. That's how you get yourself free of all of this tension, of all of this garbage. And I know, really, freedom comes from submission? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Freedom doesn't come from everybody else submitting to you. You've been trying that for a long time. It hasn't worked. Humanity has been trying it the wrong way for thousands of years. And, And it's been a disaster. Ed Shaw writes this. I love this quote. Our knowledge of what is right and wrong cannot be derived from what comes naturally to us because everything that is wrong with this world came naturally from us. Amen? Our call is to submit to God and the good news of the gospel, to understand that we're screwed up, we have screwed up, and everything is screwed up because of us, and yet Jesus comes and he takes that screwed upness, I made up that word, it's awesome, that screwed upness, and he fixes it. He redeems our self-induced futility, he justifies us in our guilt, he forgives us our sin, and he makes us righteous even in our abject brokenness. We keep trying to dig ourselves out of, the, out of our own holes that we have created, and we, we just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper, and that's the beauty of God's love, because what God does is he reaches down into that hole and pulls us out, and he's the only one who can. We're in a quicksand that was, that was created by us. We'll never get out without him pulling us out, and there's probably going to be a giant sucking sound when he pulls us out, because we want to go back to that old way, Right? Putting on the new means humbly submitting to God's love, wisdom, and sacrifice. Come to Jesus and put on the new. For people who would not identify themselves as as a Christian, you should should talk to somebody. Don't just run out of here to your brunch or whatever it is. You, You should talk to somebody. Talk to the people standing in the wings during reflection time. Talk to the person who invited you if you were invited. Email one of our elders or staff or or pastors or deacons or me. And we'll take you out for coffee. We'd love to talk to you. And for those who identify as Christians, you're not off the hook. We need to understand this more than anyone. We need to be willing to interact with the Word and and ask for prayer and join a redemption community. And, and of course, grab coffee with an elder, staff member, deacon, or RC leader and, and go deeper. Go deeper. Putting on the new self in Christ, Paul says, is the original image and likeness of God 
in which we were created before sin entered this world, before sin entered the human condition. That's a, that's a beautiful thing that I think anybody would want, and Jesus makes that all possible. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord God, we, we thank you for this truth. It, 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 again, if you just think about this, the only way we can understand the purity of your love is to understand that you are both sovereign and merciful and, and that we have issues. And, and that turns into a beautiful thing when Christ came and died for us. So we thank you for that. Let us celebrate that now as we take communion together as believers. We sing another song. God, we pray that you'd bless us and that you would be glorified. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.